we were now in the ocean and there was nowhere to dock the boat to reformulate this boat it's like whatever boat you came to the dance you gotta like you can add some engine to it you can add some stuff but it is that boat you're gonna go in and so when we started over we know oh okay this time when we're building a boat we need these things on the boat because when we're in the middle of the pacific ocean we don't have time to dock so we got to figure it out while we're in the ocean and the waves are going to come fast. They're going to come heavy. Now, the good thing is there's going to be calm times where the ocean's going to be nice and beautiful too. But then 10 hours later, you're going to be in the thick of a storm with your captain, you know, pulling sails off, dealing with problems, major problems. That kind of grit that's been taught to me as a child really served me in the time of need of kind of leaning on that. Um, I'm not gonna quit. I'm gonna I'm gonna push forward. And I think we have a, a unstained belief and and that if we put our best effort and we do whatever we can, the universe is gonna take care of us. Whatever the universe is gonna will, it's gonna will. We can't determine what card we're gonna get. All we can do is play the hand we're given. So I think those things help me guide through the, sh the dark days and just see what's in front of my feet. Because I think that's what people need when they're hit down. They just need to look at what's in front of them for a little bit. One step, two step. And then after a while, you start seeing some sun, you start seeing movement, you're jogging, and then you go, okay, I'm alive. I might be shot, but I'm alive. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selleck, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome seven hatters. Embark on a gastronomic journey as we traverse the vibrant landscapes of traditional Afghan and the bustling farmer's markets of California, delving into hats one, three, and four, the soul, the servant, and the entrepreneur, as we are joined by Bilal Sadiq, a visionary entrepreneur and the culinary maestro behind Bolani, a brand that celebrates the heart and soul of Afghan flatbreads and spreads. Bilal's invincible spirit and dedication have positioned him at the epicenter of the food and cultural exchange universe, masterfully navigating the complexities of building an authentic CPG brand, championing cultural expression, and crafting a narrative that resonates with heritage and innovation. From cherished memories in his grandmother's kitchen in Afghanistan to the thriving stalls in California's farmer's markets and the subsequent evolution into a recognizable brand, Bolani. Bilal's story is a testament to perseverance, passion, the power of family traditions, and, of course, the American dream. So as we prepare to dive into a world where tradition meets contemporary flair, experience the rich tapestry of Afghan culinary arts, and explore the transformative journey of an immigrant's dream to entrepreneurial success, let's extend a warm welcome to Bilal on The Seven Hats. Bilal, welcome to The Seven Hats, brother. Nice to be here. Listen, I've been buzzing with excitement about this chat. It's not every day that we get to dive deep 
with someone who's seamlessly blended their rich cultural heritage with the vibrant tastes of American culinary scene, right? And not just anyone, but a friend, an entrepreneur who's turned traditional Afghan flavors into the sensation that is so well known by the name of Balani. It's a story of uh, grit, innovation, heartfelt passion, you know, from the grassroots beginnings at local farmers markets, which I think is awesome, to reshaping how we all savor Afghan cuisine in the States. Your journey is really something else. So we're eagerly waiting to uncover the golden nuggets, the stories, the challenges, and the moments that have shaped you, the Bilal that we've come to love so much. So let's dive right in, shall we? Bilal, where were you born and how was your childhood like? So I was born in uh, Walnut Creek, California, and I was raised basically a kind of a refugee camp. So the U.S. government, my parents were immigrants from Afghanistan, along with a lot of my extended family. They all came together and we lived in different apartment buildings that were kind of like a bunch of Afghans living there and the government was taking care of it. And so my childhood was very unique because I didn't speak any English. I didn't really know any outside of my Afghan culture, even though I was here in America. So only interacted with Afghans when it was Americans. It was like a social worker or, uh, you know, a medical agent or something like that until I went to school. And then obviously that's when I started to learn the culture, the language. Yeah, to answer your question, that's uh, I always identify as an Afghan. And that's because, you know, through my life, even growing up, when uh, even though I'm an American citizen, even Americans, when they would talk to me, they would say, my wife is American. So when I first met her, she would say, why do you always tell people you're Afghan? Like you're American. And then I said, wait till you live with me. You'll see why I do that. And then after a while, you know, I'd meet a neighbor. I'd meet a friend with her as we're married. And they would say, hey, where are you from? And I would say, oh, I'm from, uh, you know, Concord. And they'd be like, no, 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 where are you from? I'm like, um, you know, Morello Road. And they're like, no, 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 where are you from? Like, oh, I I'm originally, like, my parents are from Afghanistan. And they'd be like, oh, you're Afghani. And that's it. I became the Afghan guy. So I always told my wife, people always, like, even Americans always think I'm Afghan. So I must have been just, you know, that's how I identified to make it easy, short, straight to the point. And my wife figured that out, too. It's like, oh, your husband's Afghan. And then it just became her husband's Afghan, you know? <laughs> so that's, that's kind of my uniqueness of how I understand myself in this paradigm we call America. You definitely take culture very seriously. I met your family. Yes. Tell us, siblings? Yeah, I got two brothers and one sister, and then I have an adopted brother. Oh, wow. Yep. So what were the ages? So my brother is like uh, 12 years younger than me, and then my other brother is like 14 years younger than me. And my sister is six years younger than me. And my adopted brother is like a year younger than me. He was actually my friend who would come over and stay with us. And after a while, he just never went home. <laughs> and, and my mom's like, bro, we have this American kid. We can't just keep him here. Like, so then we like talked to his family. And then his family was kind of like not doing so well. They were not really after him. So yeah, he just stayed with us. And since then, he stayed there till he was like 32 years old. I told him he's more Afghan than me, man. He was living with my parents after I moved out. So yeah, now he's married. Yeah. Knowing the food that you serve in the house, I wouldn't leave either until I was 32. And that's basically what happened. He would come over for dinner, he would eat. And then he's like, hey, can I stay here? And we're Afghan. We're like, yeah, sure. Go ahead, sleep there. It's all good. 
So how was growing up? Tell us the, the story. Your parents strict? Did they, what did they expect of you? Yeah. Give us the, the timeline between the high school years where they're more formidable. I think my parents and my extended family in general, they're normal Afghan immigrants. So they're definitely more strict and stern and more expectation than an average American. As most foreigners who come to this country would tell you, you have to be a doctor, a lawyer, you have to study, you have to get straight A's, never do drugs, don't talk to girls unless you're going to marry her. You know, a lot of Eastern cultures will have. So I kind of grew up in that household and I grew up that uh, with my uncle. So it's a big family. I had a lot of uncles. I have my mom's one of eight. My dad's one of nine. So I have a lot of cousins and uncles and they, they all kind of shaped me in their own way. I would say in high school, my uncle owned a cab company and I worked at the taxi cab company. I was a dispatcher and then later on I was a driver at a much younger age than I probably should have. Using his permit, just, you know, Afghan life in the 90s, laws were less strict. So, yeah, I used to cab drive for a long time in high school. I actually picked up my high school teacher one day, which was a shock to her and me. But I learned how to work hard from these experiences. I also learned how to improvise. You know, also growing up Afghan, immigrant, you know, refugee, we learn how to adapt and we learn how to get through systems. So we're like, okay, this is a challenge. We'll figure it out. You know, in a lot of ways, you're constantly acting because you're trying to fit in. So it helped me kind of develop my ability to communicate and do with less, which has been very pivotal in my growth of a small business. Because you're always having to act and you're always having to change and you're always having to work with less and it's a never ending game, right? And then today you could be doing this, tomorrow you could be doing that. What did your parents do? What was their profession? Well, my mom worked at a bank Monday through Friday. And on the weekend, she worked for different farmers market companies. So we used to work for a fruit company and then a pasta company. Her name was Janice, and she had a pasta company in Napa Valley. And this is in the early 90s. And I was a young kid. That was my first job. I was like seven years old. So I would go to the farmer's market with her on the weekends and unload her truck. And then I would go sell for other vendors at the farmer's market. Like one of them was Bob. He's in Walnut Creek. He has a knife sharpening. So I would sharpen knives and call customers to come sharpen their knives. Like, hey, come try. We'll sharpen your knife. Five bucks. Come on in, miss, please. I was a cute seven-year-old, so a lot of customers liked it. And Bob would pay me five bucks, which was a lot of money in the 90s. And he was an old Jewish man. He would talk to me about long stories. And I loved listening to his stories about New York. And yeah, and I, I we lived in New York for a little while too. So I had a lot of family in New York. Most of my family lived in New York. So we would go there in the summers. So I, I loved uh, Bob. He was an interesting character. And uh, I, I think that's why I worked for him. And then I met uh, Duffy who was one of the original uh, people that started Adele Sausage back before they were famous. And they were doing a couple farmer's market and Duffy paid me 10 bucks and the leftover sausage samples. And, you know, I couldn't turn it down as a kid. And all I had to do was stick a toothpick and a sausage and be like, try a sample, miss, try a sample, miss. And that's that kind of built who I was. And as you know, going to any show, I'm really good at sampling because I've been doing this for 40 years. And what did your dad do? My dad was uh, actually a cab driver and uh, he drove taxi for my uncle's business. And in Afghanistan, my dad was in medical school and he was top of his class. He was the number one. So in Afghanistan, they rank you like number one, number two, number three. He was ranked number one in the whole country in the medical test, which is like their uh, MCATs. 
And then, so when he came here, it was a humbling experience trying to provide, trying to make it. So he had to go and just do what he could. So he drove cab because my uncle started a cab business. And uh, one day when my dad was like 44 and I was like just starting high school, no, junior high, like middle of junior high, my dad, uh, so basically in a family party, someone told my dad, oh, are you, you're just a cab driver, which in my language, Farsi is a very big, right? It's a, it's a demeaning comment. So my dad, being the stubborn Afghan that he is, he went to school the next week and he got his chemical engineering degree at 44 and he didn't study. He just like literally drove taxi during the day, read the book, took the exam and passed the classes. And he graduated from San Jose State. Wow. And uh, he got a chemical engineering degree and then he worked for a Japanese company. And that's a good segue to why we ended up here. So in 2003, my dad lost his job because the engineering field in 2000 got decimated, right? It took a big hit and there was a lot of layoffs. A lot of companies moved overseas. There was the Y2K thing in Silicon Valley. So my dad lost his job and my mom was working at a bank and she was doing farmer's market. So that was the time when we got together as a family because that's how we roll. We had a family meeting. And we said, what are we going to do? And they said, let's start selling our own products at the farmer's markets. And so we thought about what we would do. And my mom said, we're going to do Bolani because it's a good food product. It's a good street food. It's something that people will buy every week. It's not like, you know, hot food, like kebab and rice or something like that. It's something people will buy a lot of and package it and they'll keep it and they'll store it and they'll freeze it. So that's kind of how Bolani was born. And I thought at the time, yeah, it'll be cool. I'll do this for a couple of months while I go to community college. And here I am 20 years later, still doing Bolani. Did you leave school? Yes. So that wasn't hard for me because I was never a good student. I was dyslexic as a young kid, even though we didn't really know what dyslexia was back then. I was also diagnosed with like HDHD and all these other things that tried to give me medication, but I just didn't take it. And so I was a troubled kid. I got in a lot of trouble. I was the class clown. I made you know, jokes and... Uh, I was not, I got in trouble. I ran with maybe the wrong crowd always. I, I like excitement. I was that guy. And so I was never good at school. So it was easy for me to kind of uh, use Bologna as an excuse not to go. Did you ever have farmer's markets in Los Angeles, in Hollywood? Yes. Yeah. And this was when? 2010, we started doing a lot of business in Whole Foods and we started doing Costco and we were doing 150 farmers markets, about 120 farmers markets a week. And so I heard about Los Angeles farmers markets and I had a real estate agent and I said, you know what, farmers markets, they have a rule. You have to make it locally. You have to be within a certain vicinity. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go make a kitchen in LA, a small little one, and we'll just produce for farmers markets out there. Well, my agent called me, my real estate agent called me and said, hey, I got like a food factory down here. That's like a bit like run out of business. That's exactly what you do. So we actually moved the whole operation down south, except for a small little satellite kitchen that we made the products to the markets up north. And so we started making food in L.A. farmers markets from 2011. And the last year when we left, because when the business, well, I'm sure we'll get into it, went through its ups and downs as I lost the company and I had to start over. We stopped in 2018 because it just got too hard to go down there. I got to be honest, this is really interesting because I then met you around 2010, 11, when we were living in Los Angeles and you were one of my favorite stops on the farmer's market on Sundays. 
I got a, it was just incredible food. And I was a fan before I even knew you, Thank which you. is great because I met you before I met you. So that's yeah, awesome. Love it. Love it. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. So starting a business obviously requires a significant leap of faith, right? Especially when it comes to building a, a, a brand like Bolani from the ground up. Yep. Can you take us back to those early days and talk about some of the challenges that you faced as a new CPG brand in the market? You know, one of the early things that I faced a lot was growing pains because we were growing so quickly and trying to capitalize on growing without, you know, one thing about us in 20 years and two iterations of Bolani, we've never took on investment. So we've always self-funded. So that has always been a huge challenge for us. Where do we allocate our resources and where do we put our chips? Because as you know, the wrong chess move in that could be the end of the story. And so that's something that's, that's been very troublesome and to this day is. So the initial experience of going into these farmers markets, where did you start noticing that you might have some issues as a first time CPG founder? Because you weren't in retail yet, you were just doing farmers markets. Now farmers markets, you might say that are much easier than retail, but did you face any substantial issues where you were doubting the initial decision to to go into starting a food brand? That's a great question because I think, and I'm going to just say it bluntly, I'm going to go straight at it. Farmers markets are is a real business, so it ha- it's very hard and, and you got to work hard and it takes a lot of manpower and it takes a lot of effort. But it's a real business. It's like a dry cleaner. It's like, uh, you know, you make product, you sell it, you make the leftover of that, that profit. You pay the people, obviously, and all those things, and you have kitchen costs. But at the end of the day, whatever's left is yours. There's no promo. There's no marketing. There's none of that. It's just hand-to-hand combat. CPG, I'm not saying it's not a real business. It's just different. I guess I don't even know how to quantify it, but it's just different, right? It's, uh, you know, you're, 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 you're not really growing to just make money right now. You're growing for a potential of maybe making money one day, right? So it's very different. It, it has, I would say it has more stress. Farmer's market has probably less stress, but farmer's market takes more effort. You got to be up every day at four in the morning and seven days a week, but you don't have to deal with a lot of the mumbo jumbo that will keep you up at night and stuff. You know, end of the day, it's like a customer, you just deal with them. You know, you get an email, you get a thing. That's it. Market managers like, oh, the guy came late today. It's not a big deal, you know? So uh, even if you do a hundred of them, it's not stressful like that. And whatever product you made for the week, it's already sold and you moved on to the next batch you're making. And you're doing that week to week and the money's real. Did you experience a lot of spoilage in terms of trying to figure out how much to make to satisfy the demand? Uh, especially in the beginning, yes, because you don't know how much to make, but so it's different. So I would say in terms of spoilage, not really, because you're not holding on to any product. You know, you're selling it in four hours. So you do get spoilage because there's only a certain amount of time that you can sell that product, right? From market to market where it's not sellable anymore. Mm-hmm. So you do get problems like that. So yes, there is spoilage. There is there is that component, but it's less. It's less than retail. You know, it's interesting. Bilani is is so deeply rooted in your family's Afghan heritage because this is what you were growing up with, right? This is the food you ate when growing up. Yes. How did you balance 
preserving the authenticity, right, and the flavors that is true Afghan, because you'll have, I mean, I'm sure you had to adapt to the American palate. Were, were there any specific challenges that you encountered during the process of transitioning, or did you keep the product so authentic and you did not change it at all from the Afghan roots? Yeah, so that's a good thing you brought that up. So one of the things that we, when we started it, we wanted to make bolani that was really good. And my, and everybody makes bolani different, right? It's like any great thing, you know, tamales in Guatemala are different than tamales from Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, from Oaxaca, they're different than they are from Tijuana. So uh, I'm from, we're from Northern Afghanistan and uh, my mom's grandma who made this, they bake bolani. A lot of Afghans fry bolani. They used to make bolani in a tandoor which is a much different type of Central Asian type bolani. And so we wanted to keep that authenticity and we wanted to make good bolani. My mom's a very good cook. That's the number one reason we're in business. Everything else I tell you is just mumbo jumbo. Her food is really good. So I wanted to preserve that food. But I would say in two avenues, the food, we had to adapt a little bit over 20 years of business. One is in the beginning days, we cut the pepper because Americans didn't need spice. Which is funny now because we don't cut the pepper anymore as much because Americans like much more spice than they did 20 years ago. The other thing is we do little things that we had to tweak with to help with water activity and shelf life and, you know, little things like that have to have to be done in any packaged food. I would say that's not just me. As you know, you've all, that's everybody in this industry. We're going to add a little bit of cultured weed, a little bit of vinegar, you know, lemon juice, just a little bit to preserve things, keep water activity at bay. Other than that, we, we, we don't add no preservatives. We always stuck clear of uh, mold inhibitors. You know, for me, it's like I'd rather make a real product, have some spoilage and loss than make a fake product. I'll take that any day of the week. Yeah. That's just not what I want to make. I don't want to eat that, and I don't want my customers to eat that. If that means I have a shorter shelf life or I have some early mold, whatever that case might be, I'll deal with that. Then I will uh, putting a mold inhibitor or a sodium potassium, which is just going to preserve that stuff in your stomach and make you hurt, you know, long term. And it goes, it comes back to the authenticity that you have and what we share, right? That's one of our bonds is yes. that love, the authenticity of who we yes. are as, as human beings. Yes. And I think that goes a long way with how you make your product. But obviously starting a company doesn't uh, come without its setbacks. So you had, I know one with your mother, right? You had some illness there. And you, you also told me that your dad also experienced some illness. And there might have been some loss of business and a really tough period. Tell us about that period. And how did you find the strength to bounce back from such a challenging situation? Because ultimately, a family dynamic like that, when that happens, it's a blow, especially one that's as close as yours. Tell us about the story. What are the strategies or mindset shifts that help you overcome those obstacles? So we grew really big in 2016 through LA, Whole Foods, Costco, many other retailers we were growing in. And we got to about 15 million in sales in 2016. And we were really growing and we were gearing up like we were 16 million sales. But the year before we were like 9 million, we were gearing up to get to the 20 and 30 and 40 range. So we had a big manufacturing plant in LA, about 25,000 square feet. And then we had a distribution center slash kitchen in Livermore, which was like another 20,000 square feet. And so at the time we were growing, my uh, my mom got sick and we had a lot of other things. We had some other consultants that weren't always necessarily in the best of interest. And we started to play the CPG game. 
Mm. We started to listen to the people to say, hey, this is the way you got to do it. You got to raise funny. You got to like, you got to do it this way and you got to grow it and you got to get to hundred million and sell in four years. And we started to get into that rat race. And so we started to make decisions based on that. And so part of that, my mom, she got a little bit of colon cancer. So that really, I wanted my parents to get away from the business because they're big micromanagers of it. By giving it away, we gave it to a conglomerate. They kind of took over the sales of the company. Now they're good people, but it just didn't work out. They weren't able to make the same kind of product we were. It was just, it was really hard for them. It's not their forte, I don't think. So we ended up getting the company back from them and starting all over again. So Mm -hmm. in 2018, I had zero sales. I had no kitchen because I had given up both leases, no equipment and no employees. So I had to call my friend who had an Afghan bakery and say, hey, can I rent your bakery at night and bake? So I took my mom who's sick at the time and I would take my brother and we would bake bologna in the middle of the night. I'm talking about like uh, 10 o'clock at night to like 4 a.m. And then we go sell it at a couple farmer's markets who I would call them and farmer's market. That's why I never leave them. And that's why they're the base of my business now and 50, 100 years from now. They stood by me when people would not. And they, they said, you know what, Bill, come on Saturday. A lot of them said, forget the permit, just come here. I'm going to let you sell. Whatever happens, happens. And so, you know, they gave me the opportunity to get on my feet again. That's why I still go to the farmer's market every Saturday and Sunday myself. I still do the farmer's market every Saturday to the chagrin of my family sometimes. Because I, I feel indebted to them. And one, it, it grounds me. It grounds me to where I am. It keeps me to where, and it's a mentality thing. It keeps me to where this is the ship I built and I'll always be on this ship. So I'm not worried about whatever ocean I'm throwing into. And so we started all over again. It was a lot of push. It caused a lot of trauma and anxiety. My mom is now healthy. We are gained like 70% of our business back and we are uh, much stronger million times stronger than we were the first time. Because I think one of the things of starting over, first of all, I think very few people would have started over in the position we were. They would have just thrown it in the hat. So it just showed us how resilient we really were to start a self-manufacturing because we manufacture everything from scratch. We package, we make, and we sell everything. At one time we were distributing, but we gave up that part. And so we started all over again. But one good thing is, it's like, you know, I always tell people, I use this analogy. When we started in the farmer's market, we were kind of in our local river. And we had a boat for that river. And then we put some stuff on the boat and we got into the delta. And the delta got a little faster. And then we hit the bay. And the bay was a little bigger and broader. And kind of when we did mass production, we were now in the ocean. And there was nowhere to dock the boat to kind of re formulate this boat it's kind of like whatever boat you came to the dance you got to kind of like you can add some engine to it you can add some stuff but it is that boat you're going to go with and so when we started over we kind of know oh okay this time when we're building a boat we need these things on the boat because when we're in the middle of the pacific ocean we don't have time to dock so we got to figure it out while we're in the ocean and the waves are going to come fast they're going to come heavy now the good thing is there's going to be calm times where the ocean is going to be nice and beautiful too but then 10 hours later, you're going to be in the thick of a storm with your captain, you know, pulling sails off, dealing with problems, major problems. So that's why I love you, man. It's why I do what I do with ProMesh, because I failed as a brand founder with my wife. And I just love the stories of 
these dreamers, the entrepreneurs out there who just literally give up everything in order to bring out a product they believe in, right? What were some of the strategies? Because you mentioned that most would quit and would not start over. And I agree with that. I think 99% would not start over. What were some of the strategy? What's the mindset like to put it all on the line again? You know, a lot of it has to do with the way I'm brought up and the way my family's brought up. Atkins are a very poor country. They're not known for a lot of fancy things. They're not fancy, but they have a grit and they have a thing that's taught to them as a child. And it's a relentless pursuit of never giving up. Giving up to an Afghan is more shameful than anything. I mean, I think that's uh, one of the reasons it's a harsh terrain. The terrain of Afghanistan is very harsh. I don't think people would live in a lot of places that Afghanistan, especially uh, not desert, but the mountains. The mountains are rough and they're hard to live and they're unforgiving. So I think that kind of grit that's been taught to me as a child really served me in the time of need of kind of leaning on that. You know, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to push forward. And I think we have an unstained belief and that, you know, if we put our best effort and we do whatever we can, the universe is going to take care of us. You know, whatever the universe is going to will, it's going to will. We can't determine what card we're going to get. All we can do is play the hand we're given. So I think those things kind of help me guide through the, sh the dark days and kind of just see what's in front of my feet. Because I think that's what people need when they're hit down. They just need to look at what's in front of them for a little bit. Yeah. One step, two step. And then after a while, you start seeing some sun, you start seeing movement, you're jogging, and then you go, okay, I'm alive. I might be shocked, but I'm alive, you know? <laughs> you're right, it's that first step coming back. And though that's the most difficult and dangerous step because you don't want to get hurt again. Everybody's very sensitive. And so you're like, all right, well, I got to do it again and I got to pick myself up. And then when you take that first step, what I find, it's just trying to get consistency. Even if you don't see anything for a long time, it's that belief that you're going to get there and the ability to be consistent in your efforts and just work really hard. I always say you cannot control what happens to you. You can only control your response and what you do every day. And exactly. if you do that, brother, I mean, that's the, it's the same with me. You have the ocean and sometimes yeah. it's awesome and sunny and calm and dolphins are jumping around and you're feeling great. And then mm -hmm. other times it's the perfect storm, right? And, and you know something you bought it's also, it's when you fail, it's humiliating, right? I think that's a big fear of every human being. We're, we're scared of being humiliated as a failure, right? To our peers, to our colleagues, to our family, to our wife, to our kids, to our father, to our friends, to the industry that we're in. But I think, you know, when I was in that kitchen at night with my mom and it was the tough one step, two step days, I remember there was an excitement after the third day that we got. We said, you know what? Who gives a fuck? We already failed. We're embarrassed. Yeah. Who cares? What else could happen? Nothing else could really happen. All we could do is, you know, fail again. We already know how that feels. So I think it was that kind of feeling that helped us get excited again. Like, okay, we got another shot at this. And we already had the worst thing happen to us, humiliation. And it's not that bad. It's no. not the end of the world. No, and I think immigrants have a good sense of being able to persevere because for generations, my parents came from Russia. 
and their generation struggled so much through so many wars and so many failures. Yes. And so it's in our nature, it's in our blood to fail, but persevere because we have to. There's no other way to keep the tradition alive. And so that's why when I see successful groups in this country, many of them are immigrants or first generation from the immigrants that came here. Yes. So I just think that's fascinating. And I love that too. I love it too. And you know what? You brought up a good point because I think every region of the world that comes to this country, they bring that grit because like you said, it's dealt with a lot of places in the world have dealt with war, famine. You know, you brought up Russia. My, my grandmas came from Bukhara. You know, they were, uh, they're like from the Russian empire. So they dealt with a lot of famine and the czar treating them like crap or maybe treating them like good, depending on the czar and the time period, rationing food, you know, and it's a cold climate. So it kind of builds that grit of like, you got to survive, you know, and I leaned on those things. And my grandma is one of the people that uh, gave me some inspiration in those dark days of, you know, telling me up how her ancestors lived and how her father lived. And, you know, you're like, that's that's nothing compared to what I'm dealing with. Yeah. I'm dealing with some humiliation. And I think that's one thing that I noticed in the last couple of decades with some of the newer generations. They don't know. And I, and I say this lightly because I'm not saying that every generation has their problems, right? And there's no question about it. But the difference between what your ancestors went through and mine and other immigrants, they're not experiencing the same type of disastrous daily events. So I wonder how that's going to translate to how this next or the previous couple of generations are raised and how they're going to fare out when difficult times happen. So that's that's interesting. I think it's also the generations of the past. They were uh, because of the circumstances and the way they were brought up. They were stronger too, so they were easier to deal with situations that were as tough as they were dealing with. You know, there's a good quote I always look back to. It said, "When the ships were made of wood, the men were made of steel." Mm. You know, when I think of my grandfather, my grandmother. You know, my grandmother is made of steel, man. She's, uh, you know, but it's also because she grew up totally different with different circumstances. When when you study explorers like Shackles in Antarctica, you know, the, the, when I read a story, I'm like, bro, this guy walked through half of Antarctica on foot with three guys. Then he made a raft and swam across the Elephant Island. Then he got there on the wrong side. So he said, hey, let's just jump off this mountain that's uh, 7,000 feet and we break our leg, whatever. You know, those kind of people don't exist anymore like that. But also, I think the new generation, they, they, they don't have to deal with the same type of atmosphere. So I think, you know, every action is a reaction, right? So it's going to be interesting if we do go into tough times in the future, which could happen the way we're treating our planet, the way we're treating humanity, the way the world is, you know, world stage is, you know, going crazy. If we continue on that path, it's going to be interesting to see how not so tough people deal with tough situations. And I think that's going to determine the future of humanity, right? For sure. And I'll go a step further. I can guarantee you that we're going to face extremely difficult situations. We just don't know when, but it is coming. And some of them are going to be worse than we've ever imagined in our lifetimes. And some maybe not so much, but, but it, it, it's all about the grit and the ability to overcome the obstacles. I mean, that's why our grandmas are probably always saying, eat, eat, eat. You're not eating enough. You're not eating enough. Because when you experience famine, you want to make sure that your 
next generations are not. And so you're always forcing them to make sure to ensure that they're they're fed. And that's in their blood, you know? Absolutely. When I sample at a farmer's market or show, people always tell me, hey, you feed me like my grandma. I always know they're an immigrant, whether they're Russian, Vietnamese, <laughs> Cambodian, because grandmas from countries outside the West that they haven't had so much luxury, they feed and feed because you never know when the next meal is going to come. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get back to CPG. So now you're moving into retail again, and it's a complex process. Could you share some insights into what it takes to get your products on the shelf? What are some of the challenges in regards to packaging and pricing and distribution and deductions and promotions? Give us a couple of of big problem areas that you face and are facing today to help other CPG founders at least have a chance to look out for those issues if they're starting a brand. Okay, I'm going to give it to you as best as I can because I don't know if I'm the best person to describe this but I'll give you my experiences. Yep. I think it the biggest problem that you're going to face and most CPG people face, if you nail it down to one big problem, it's the chicken before the egg. I think that sums it up. So you want to get into retail, you need to be in that depot, a distribution center, whether it be a KE, a Unified, a Tony's, or whatever, DOT, whatever, right? The depot doesn't want to bring you in unless the anchor customer brings you in. So now you got to get an anchor customer, right? But then the anchor customer is less likely to bring you in unless you're in the depot, right? Because they don't want to do all this work. They don't want to guarantee the sales. It's like this constant battle. So then you have to gather a bunch of little chickens to try to open up that depot. But then when you gather up a bunch of little chickens, the people who order, they're not sure what to order because they're smaller accounts. And then you have a bunch of spoilage. So then you have a early date. You know, you don't get it a day and then you lose money. So you're losing money constantly losing money. You might be in seven depots, but you're just losing money. If you really do the numbers and you really dive deep, which most people don't do, you really dive deep, you're going to realize you're not really making money for sure. If you count in the promos, because you, in order to attract the big anchors, you got to give all these promos and all these deals and all these shows and all this trade spend. So by doing all this, you're not really making money until until you have enough business in that depot and it's just going through. So if they're ordering 5,000 a week, it's just selling through 5,000. When you get to about 5,000, 3,000 a week consistently in a depot and it's selling through and you got a good movement, you're going to have other challenges, but that depot is going to work. The challenge is going to be anytime you add on another big account, how is the buyer going to adjust for that? So they're not because Buyers are not going to be able to adjust. It's hard. You got to, you know, we always blame them, but it's also hard on their end too, right? They're looking at you. They're looking at some other brand, completely different velocity, completely different category, but they got to buy them. So they don't really know how much you're going to sell in the store. And so I don't even think you would know as a buyer and it's your product. So they just kind of guess. And then they, they, they're, the way the, the machine is built in CPG, it's all very slow. So by the time they even figure out they've ordered too much or too less, now they make an adjustment. And there's a lot of overreaction. So now they're buying way less. So now you have the opposite problem. It's out of stock. So you're always going to be casing this problem. But I think initially you got to get the depot open and you got to sell through $3,000 worth of product. I think a week. Once you get that, you'll figure out the rest over time. But that right there is very difficult. And then to replicate that in every depot in the country is a whole nother set of challenges. Yeah, for sure. You know, what you're talking about in terms of trade spend, that's why I failed because I wasn't able to manage it. 
effectively. And that's why we started Promomesh. I wanted to find out why do so many brands fail? Because they do. 90%, I think, or close to 90%, never make it to five years. So that's a huge number and that's a problem. In order for us to, to help brands, we had to redefine what CPG stands for. So CPG stands for consumer packaged goods to the average individual. But we understood that CPG actually is what it will take to allow a brand to be successful. And what I mean by that is that we change the acronym. C is cash flow, P is profitability, and G is growth. I because, love Because ultimately, my problem was I didn't understand my cash flow. I wasn't able to forecast correctly. I wasn't able to understand what am I spending on a monthly basis. And I was always surprised because it was usually more than I had. And then even if I had the money and I tried to grow, if I didn't have a path to profitability at the retailer level, not at the company level, if my retailers were not profitable and I wasn't making changes to those retailers, that's the problem. And most brands don't have a PL for their retailers. They just have a PL for their company. And then when you're looking at cash flow and profitability, you have to juggle that along with growth. Because a lot of brands come to me and they say, guess what, Yuval, I'm so happy. Costco wants to put me in all of their stores. I'm like, fantastic. Next question I ask is, how many stores are you in right now? Oh, we're in 200 stores. Great. Are you profitable? No, I'm not. And I'm like, it's crazy. You're not profitable in 200 stores and now you want to triple that. How are you going to be profitable? And then the worst thing is they don't even have money to support the new launch. That's why brands go out of business because they can't manage their cash flow. They do not understand the road to profitability because they don't have the data and they're not managing their growth effectively based on those two factors. That's what happened. Yeah, I think that's that's a big part of my shift thinking this time. So last time I, I wanted to get into the CPG race. And, I, and there's people who do CPG the way, like with shareholders, investors, growth, growth, and they do it wonderfully. But like you said, they're, they're probably even less than the 10 percenters who actually do it. Probably like 1% of people mm -hmm. become a Lily's chocolate and Amy, Emmy's cookies, you know. Those are, are very few. Rayo's pasta sauce. Those are very few. So one thing I... I I, I wanted to do on this reiteration. I thought about it. I said, you know, I, I, I've learned from some uh, immigrant owners, like one is Sugar Bowl Bakery. A a Andrew uh, has been my, I I've known him for a while now. I met him at an FBI conference in San Francisco where we talked about Asian heritage. And uh, I went to his office when I was in my darkest day and he gave me some of the best advice. He sat me down, Andrew, and, he, and me, my mom and my dad, and he said, Stop thinking like that and start thinking like, like a company. Think like a dry cleaner. Think like a business. That's what I do at Sugar Bowl Bakery. And I thought about it. And, I, you know, and there's a couple other brands. Like in Sacramento, we're here is uh, uh, Mir Rancho, Alex, and uh, Manuel. They, uh, they make tortillas. And they, they've done it beautifully. But you got to think. They don't think like this. They think like a manufacturer. You know, they, so I have shifted my thing. It's not just about growth. We're going to grow. We're going to spend on growth, obviously, because growth takes some spend, but we want to be profitable. We want to have profits and we'll use some of the profits to grow. And we might grow in 20 years, might grow in 40 years, but we'll, we'll wait. We're not in any hurry because I'm profitable right now. I can pay my bills. I can live an okay life. It's stressful. It's hard, but I'll, I make enough to take care of myself. 
And I don't need to make a giant salary or make millions in revenue and sell for 100 million tomorrow. Forget that. I just worry about the quality of the product. I keep worrying about how can we make this product better and better and better and better. And I think what I see, we've known each other for a little bit, and I and what I've seen from you on a day-to-day basis, no matter how difficult it gets, you just are happy. Like these days, you just love what you do. And why would you want to sell? You get in, you do your thing, you're helping people, you're getting great feedback, right? You're working with your family. I mean, many people don't get that opportunity. And that's that's a that's a beautiful thing. But when you're working with your family, though, my question is, because I know a lot of entrepreneurs, right? They work with their spouse, they work with their children, slave labor, as they call them. And there are a lot of challenges, different dynamics, personalities, fights many times. How has it been working with your family and have you had some real challenges in terms of personality dynamics and decision-making dynamics? And then how did you deal with that? You know, I think that's going to come along with it, right? If anyone has ever worked with their wife, their mom, their dad, their brother, it doesn't matter. You're going to have days where you fight and there's going to be days where you love each other. I think a key component is building boundaries, healthy boundaries, right? And building that uh, not only with the people, but also uh, being straightforward with it, not holding that within. Because I think a lot of times we hold that within and just setting those healthy boundaries. And then obviously your family, they're going to cross those boundaries. It's going to happen. They're your family. You know, you just got to be able to take some of that too. You know, you can't nitpick at every single thing, but you got to draw the line when it's really affecting you and get serious. And if they're loving and good enough, I think they'll see that and be like, okay, you're right. You know, I I shouldn't do those things, you know, and kind of go from there. And that's going to be a daily grind. I think there is a lot of challenges when you work with your family, but I think it's the most rewarding because, you know, it's your family. Who else would you want to share love and glory with than your family? Yeah. And it's the support too. A lot of times you get a co-founder and other people on your team, but that support from a family member or family, a team, a tribe is just, there's nothing like it. And that's, I think that's beautiful. And it's the loyalty, it's the, the the security and the trustability. You know, you just feel very open and free. Because, you know, at the end of the day, your your wife's not going to screw you. Your mom's not going to screw you, you know. At least you like to hope so. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that as a blanket statement, my no, friend. No, 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 no. <laughs> but you, you know what I mean. You, you can yeah. be more free around them. Yeah, uh, you don't have to. You can just be straight and you can be honest. You don't have to sugarcoat it. What do you think is the one habit that kept you going through the ups and downs and contributed to where you are right now? If I had one habit that's really helped me is grounding yourself. Hmm. So I think that's the number one thing that's helped me because the thing about uh, food business and business in general is there's a lot of risk, like we talked about. There's a lot of peaks and there's a lot of valleys. So I think keeping yourself not too excited when something amazing happens, like when Costco says, I'm going to take you in 200 stores. And I think there shouldn't be a big dip when Costco says, hey, I'm just going. Yeah. I think you just stay grounded. And I think you stay grounded and you your ability to stay grounded while continuing to embrace the misery as a happiness. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a problem, but it's a challenge, right? Now we're excited. We can solve this problem. And it might not happen today. You don't have to think today or this week. It might take three years to figure out that problem. But we can work towards it, and everything is a learning. Even a bad thing is a learning experience. So we're going to be better in three years. And guess what? We're going to be around in three years. So I think it's those two mindsets of longevity 
So not thinking to sell in three years, because I think that's where a lot of people get that problem, which I'm not against. That's a whole different thing. I'm just, everything is subjective. I'm just explaining how I think. I'm thinking I'm going to be here around in 20 years. And I'm thinking whatever problem comes, whatever misery comes, it's just a learning curve. We're going to learn. We're going to get better. And, and eventually we're going to conquer those problems years from now. We spoke a little bit before the show and you were telling me how, because we know mental health and, and burnout is so prevalent among entrepreneurs and CPG entrepreneurs as well. How are you handling it now? Because I know you've, you've made some changes. Give the other entrepreneurs out there some glimpse into what they can do to calm their nerves down a little bit. And what have you been doing? So one thing is one of the, my uh, office manager who works here, she told me to take off my shoes and just feel the ground barefoot. And I know it sounds crazy, but I started doing it. It makes me feel good. And I do it more and more. Uh, it kind of helps ground me. So that's a good coping mechanism that I've used. Another thing that I've done is don't overthink. Don't catastrophize. Just, I think as entrepreneurs, we do that so much. We get that email. We go, oh no, we're going to lose this account now because of this problem. Oh no, that's going to happen. I'm going to be out of here. You know, we go through this rat race, right? And I think you got to just stop doing that. Like, just do it right now because I'm going to tell you 99% of the time, none of that stuff happens. Not, none of that happens. It's, it's, it's whatever is happening in that moment happens. And like that B, B, you know, we start thinking A is going to lead to C and D and G. It might probably more A, B, and C, D will happen if you start thinking A, B, C, and D will happen. So if you stop thinking like that and being more positive and being more uplifting, and here's the deal. I think you got to start having a mentality when I say embrace the misery, you got to embrace the happiness and then it'll allow you to embrace the misery. So you got to start thinking like, what is going to happen? I'm here, I'm selling a food product. If you don't do this, you could do another thing. It's not the end of the world. So what? You fail, you're going to get embarrassed. It's not a big deal. You know, it, it, embarrassment is what? People laugh for a second or people talk about you. Let me tell you, even if you do everything right, people are going to talk about you, good or bad. So I, I think you just put all that to side, embrace the goodness. You know, whatever it's gonna, you're going to be doing, be happy in it. Ultimately, it's about being present because anxiety is what's going to happen. And regret is what happened before. If you're present right now in this moment, I'm talking to you all, I'm having a good time, I'm laughing. You know, I'm happy right now. I don't know what's going to happen two years from now. Like you've all said, the world could end in five years. I don't know. It could be really bad. But right now in this moment, I'm enjoying, I'm having fun. I'm going to a food show. I'm sampling my product. I'm going to a farmer's market. I'm laughing. I'm also dealing with some problems. I'm dealing with shortages. I'm dealing with supply chain issues, customer complaint, this person, that person, a buyer didn't like it, didn't sell really good in Wichita, Kansas. You know, I'm figuring out all these things, but I'm happy right now. And I think you have to just remind yourself and embrace that. And then you can embrace the misery. That is some of the sagest advice that the seven headers can take home with them. If nothing else, out of the entire incredible interview, just take this last two minutes, replay it on a daily basis, because ultimately, the presence of the now, grounding yourself, and finding peace with what cards you're dealt with, and not trying to get new cards dealt every single time is the key to your smile, the way that you hug, the way that you present yourself, because you really are a living embodiment 
of exactly what you just stated. So, Bilal, I'd like to close out my interviews with a question. And it goes as follows. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? That's a good question. I think I, I had to stop being the scared boy that I was. Mm-hmm. And I think I was that scared boy because I dealt with a lot of trauma as a child and a lot of uncertainty. And I think that boy was always afraid of what was going to happen. And he used catastrophizing as a coping mechanism to kind of get through the moment. And I think I had to become stronger and I, to be a leader. And in order to be a leader, you got to let go. I think I had to let go of that little boy and live in the moment like I talked about. And by doing that, I was stronger because I was able to take on more misery, pain, anguish, sorrow, which this world is full of, and say, it's okay. And tell that little boy, he's okay. And I am that little boy. And I can keep that boyish charm, but I have to let go of that fear and that anger and that trauma that little boy is suffering. Wow. So many can relate to that. Bilal, you are not only an incredible person, your family, an incredible group of individuals that are so tight-knit and so lovely to meet every time we run into each other at a show. And not only is your food some of the most incredible food that anyone can taste, and I would highly, 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 as a foodie, encourage everyone that's listening to go to their local store or to figure out where Bolani is sold, even at a, at a local farmer's market, if Bilal is there handing out samples and you won't be able to refuse those samples because he'll push you to take them, and many of them, many samples, do me a favor and just try this incredible, authentic meal that Bilani sends from his heart. So Bilani, tell the Seven Hatters where they can find you, how they can reach you, where are you located these days? So in, in California, you can buy it at a lot of local farmer's markets in the Bay Area. And then I, you can buy it at a lot of natural grocers in the Bay Area. You can also buy it in LA at Air One, Lassen's. I'm in select Jimbo's in San Diego. And then in the Midwest, we sell in some select Costco's. So I'm selling in some select Costco's in the Midwest. I'm also in Myers. I'm on about 60 Meyer locations in Chicago and Michigan. And then I'm in Earth Fair in like Atlanta, two stores in Florida, kind of gets me out there. And then in uh, some areas in New York, you can get it on Thrive and also in Reno. They're kind of working out their deli, so that will kind of grow. And that's kind of the base that I'm at. And one more thing I want to say is, uh, just like Yuval talked about me a lot, Yuval and his wife are the most genuine, kindest people I meet. I meet a lot of people, and to be honest, and Yuval probably feels the same, they're good, they're they're intelligent, they're smart, they're, they're, they have a lot of character, but I don't know if they're genuinely good, like there's like an energy. And, and Yuval and his wife have this genuine goodness to them. They genuinely want to help people. It's not a facade, it's not to sell you something, they're just genuinely good people. And it shows from their face, their smile, their eyes twinkle, and I, I, when I see them, I get, I take their energy. They don't know it. I use it like caffeine and I, I reflect that back out. So I always appreciate seeing him and his wife, both the best people in this industry. 
You make me emotional, Bilal. And uh, right back at you. I am so honored to not only have you on the show because I think your experience and your love is going to shine through to everyone and having you as a friend, but just thank you for gracing us on the seven hats. This is one of my favorite episodes. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bilal. Let's end today with the show segment that I refer to as what can we hang our hat on? And here is my takeaway. Immigration is more than just a journey across borders. It's a passage through emotions, challenges, and the steadfast spirit of aspiration. Both Bilal's and my own tales intertwine in the tapestry of the immigrant experience. See, it's not a journey of the faint-hearted. It's a path walked by the brave and the determined. I vividly remember the heart-wrenching moment at the airport in Israel when I was nine years old, about to board a 747 with my mom to America. The backdrop was my teary grandparents, the undeniable pillars of my childhood. As I took those hesitant steps away, the weight of the unknown ahead clashed with the comfort of the familiar behind. In an act of raw emotions, I broke free from my mother's grip, racing back for one final desperate embrace. An embrace that symbolized the foundation of all I was leaving behind and the strength I'd need for the new world I was stepping into. Our story is not unique, but it's our own. Just as Bilal's journey from Afghanistan to carve out his destiny as a CPG entrepreneur, every immigrant's journey is dotted with challenges. Coming to a foreign land without the armor of language, culture, or financial stability is like being placed in an ancient gladiator's ring where the rules are cryptic and survival feels as challenging as evading the intense gaze of lurking lions. For my family, the challenges were real and often daunting. My father, with unwavering determination, worked tirelessly refining his art as a luthier. I remember the times where our family faced difficult choices when new shoes and weekly groceries became an either-or decision. But we persisted because immigrants with their resilience bear the weight of dreams not just for themselves but for generations to come. The sacrifices of our parents, the risks they took, and the adversities they overcame have paved the way for entrepreneurs like Bilal and me. It's their strength, their unwavering faith in the promise of the American dream that fuels our drive. The essence of the immigrant experience in many ways mirrors the entrepreneurial journey. It's filled with uncertainty, challenges, but most importantly, unyielding hope. And as we reflect on these shared tales of courage and ambition, Let's remember that the dreams we chase and the success we achieve are built on the foundation of sacrifices made by those before us. Bilal's success with Bilani, my journey, and countless others are testaments to the invincible spirit of immigrants. It's a reminder that challenges may bend us, but with determination and a legacy of strength to draw from, they will never break us. Life is full of challenges, but it's the stories of persistence, sacrifice, and love that give it meaning. So take care of yourself and find gratitude in your ancestors and generations past who risked it all for you to be where you are today. I want to thank Bilal once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there 
what value you receive from it so that we can attract even more high quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck and I tip my hat to you.